Thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. In a world that is dominated by narratives of fear, anxiety, and worry, what does it mean that joy is not dependent on outward circumstances, but on the inner state of one's heart? You've joined us in our series, Philippians, where we are exploring what Paul meant when he wrote to have joy in everything and the importance of living in unity among believers for the sake of the gospel. We pray that this message is a blessing. Philippians 3, 2 to 9. Sorry, guys. Okay. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in, G- in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in his flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God is by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please take a seat. Awesome. Thank you, Brent. Wonderful. If it's your first time in church, particularly here at New Life Brisbane, just a warm welcome to you, and especially so because I think the first line in that Bible reading used the word dogs, and it's like, oh, it's my first time in church, and gosh, dogs, help me make sense of this. I'm really going to try, you know what I mean? I've got 20 minutes, 25 minutes, I'm really going to try to make sense of that use of language. Uh, thank you, Apostle Paul. Hats off to you, brother. Um, my name's Alex. If we've not had the privilege of meeting, I have the joy of serving as one of the pastors here at New Life Brisbane. And just want to ask really briefly before we move into the next moment, um, did anyone experience any kind of healing just before when Rach so helpfully led us in prayer? just want to create space to acknowledge what God might have done if indeed something has happened. So it might be a moment for you to be brave, but just want to create space to recognize. Did anyone experience any kind of healing just before? Awesome. I've been up the front with my hand raised uh, alone in the past, and it doesn't bother me one bit. But I just want to say, as a church, like, there have been wonderful things that have been happening, and we expect that not to decrease, but to increase, not because we're so special, but because God's really faithful to the word that he's given us in the scriptures. And so I just want to say, like, if we would humble ourselves and come before the power of God, intimately requesting that he might do stuff in our midst, I'd just say, like, let's hold on for the ride, you know what I mean? And I'll just be honest, like, something I've been really wrestling with the last few weeks, particularly after coming back from overseas, is, um, like, there's an excellency we experience as a church, And I say that as someone who's got like all their T's crossed and their I's dotted on the notes that I'm about to preach a sermon from. 
And I think the invitation from God is on one level, if any of our excellency gets in the way of his power and intimacy, let's get rid of it. And the reason I feel like saying that is because Paul says the exact same thing in the passage we just read. He takes all of his religiosity, all the excellency, all of the things that he feels free to boast in, and as we'll see towards the end of my sermon, he just calls it rubbish. Not because it's bad, actually because it's good. But if we're not careful, it can get in the way. And so we've prayed, we've heard the scriptures read, let's jump into the text and... um, I wanted to share a bit of a story. I only found out about this story uh, a few weeks back. Um, It was shared by another preacher, and so I want to claim no credit for stealing this illustration, but I think it's such a helpful way to start. Um, The story's told of C.S. Lewis, um, and some of these facts I'll insert from my own reading, which is fun too, but the point of the illustration I didn't come up with. But C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, I can't do a sermon without quoting C.S. Lewis, but his story's interesting. He studied English literature, and was a bit of a critical thinker, scholar, and would have considered himself an atheist at one point. But then down the line, after interacting with Christians and going through studies, and particularly studying Greek mythology, he came to faith, not in pagan deities, but eventually, after meeting with Christians, going through the Bible, he he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And in his book, Mere Christianity, he tells his story and details the night that he leant down by his bed on his knees and prayed the prayer and said, God, I I call you my Lord and my Savior. And in his book, he says something like, that night I became the most reluctant convert in all of England. Beautiful. But something we don't know about Lewis is that he had a secretary prior to when he knew Jesus and after he knew Jesus. And as Lewis lived his life, continued on in English literature, wrote the Narnian novels, wrote a whole host of sermons and works that now benefit Christianity worldwide, His secretary came to describe him towards the end of his life. And here's what she said about him. He is the most thoroughly converted man I've ever met. He is the most thoroughly converted man I've ever met. I met Jesus myself just over 10 years ago. I would like to be more thoroughly converted. There are parts of my life that I have not let the love and holiness of God touch in the way that I want it to yet. The same might be true of you. You know who it's not true of? C.S. Lewis. And as we'll see tonight, the Apostle Paul. Because in this passage, we get something of his story, something of his conversion, something of the, I've held nothing back in my pursuit of Jesus, and he's certainly held nothing back in his pursuit of me. I had lots of things to boast in, but now I indeed only have one the one thing. It's the conversion of Paul. For the last few weeks, we've been working through the book of Philippians. We've learned about joy. Week one, that joy in the Christian story need not be based on circumstance, but inner gift that God gives us such that we can face anything outside, but because we've got this thing on the inside, the Holy Spirit, confidence in God, joy, it need not falter us, make us waver or fail. Beautiful gift. What a wonderful promise. I pray we all know joy. That was week one. Week two, Uh, I can't remember week two. Oh, Pastor Scott came along and he walked us through the fact that joy can continue, not just if circumstances are good or wavering, but even if they're really bad, like life, in other words, quote unquote, sucks. We can have joy as Christians if we follow Jesus, walk with the Spirit, regardless of what life looks like outside of ourselves. And thirdly, last week, I took a bit of extra time and walked through the way in which humility is sort of the bedrock of the kingdom of God. 
that all Christians should be people who apprentice after humility, serve others, and love people in such a way that the rest of the world asks, gosh, do they know something about life that I don't? To which the answer is, oh yeah, we worship a guy who claimed to be king, but his coronation was a cross, not a throne. And this week, I just wanna walk through Philippians 3, the conversion of Paul, and I wanna see three things. Two of them are a bit longer, one of them is really short, and the first one behind me is this. To understand conversion, we need to name our resume. What do I mean? Well, verse uh, three, four, five, and six. Verse four, five, and six, sorry. Say these words. Paul says this. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in, in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless and blameless. What's Paul doing here? Well, he's actually talking about how awesome he is in the circle of people that he belongs to, the Jewish people. Let me unpack a few of the words that he uses to help us see what he's saying precisely. He says, first up, circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, what he's saying, he's like, I'm an OG Jewish guy. I wasn't someone who met, was, I wasn't a God-fearer. I'm not from the Greek-speaking world. I, I'm someone who, from the very early days, I was a Jew, a Hebrew, circumcised on the eighth day. He's an OG. He's sort of the original gangster. He's from the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. These guys were sort of the tribe of Benjamin and Judah were the last two remaining sort of tribes that sort of oscillated and orbited their geography around the temple and around the house of David. So he's not just saying, I'm part of this wider body of people. He's saying, like, I'm right in the midst. I'm right in the center. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That in other words, at the time, there were these Greek-speaking people that ended up becoming God-fearers and worshiping Yahweh, the Jewish God. And they'd be people who, on the outside are Greek, but on the inside are Jews. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who are Jewish by ethnicity, but they give their lives over to idolatry. And so they're outwardly Jewish, but inwardly not. And Paul says, actually, externally Internally, I'm a Jew. As for zeal, he calls himself a Pharisee. Pharisees were highly educated, and on top of that, they were the kind of people who took the 613 commands of the Old Testament, and they said, these are so important, so important, we don't wanna miss keeping any of them. We're gonna put a, like a bunch of other rules around these rules. So to ensure that they didn't disobey the 613 commands given to Moses and the people of God in the Old Testament, they put these like hedge and fence around the Old Testament laws, and created what Jesus called in the Gospels a heavy and burdensome yoke for people to sit under. But Paul kept it all, which is why he finishes with the sort of mic drop moment, and he's just like, yeah, like, I've kept the law blamelessly. I've nailed this thing. What's he giving us? He's giving us a resume. He's telling us how awesome he is. And he's doing it in the language that would have resonated most with the people listening to him. See, Paul is writing to Jews and to Greeks, but the Jews listening to this and reading this would have been like, so you're telling me, you've made it to the top, the tippity-tippity-top of what it means to be a faithful religious Jew. And Paul's like, yep, I've absolutely nailed it. He's giving us a resume. Now, what does a resume do? A resume lists merit so that we might gain access into any particular body of people. Paul's doing it for Jews, showing that he's nailed it. But we do it in a whole host of ways. 
I went to indeed.com to look up a definition for a resume. Here's what it said. A resume lets you advertise yourself to potential employers and needs to create a positive first impression. The resume is the first document employers look at when reviewing your application. If it's ineffective or poorly written, prospective employers are likely to overlook you as a potential candidate and move on to other candidates with better resumes. Resumes is a way, when we give a resume to an employer, it's a way of us saying, hey, I'm actually pretty good. Would you let me into your workmanship? Would you let me into your body? Would you let me onto the team, onto the force? We advertise our merits and our performance, and that gives us access. And here's the argument that the Bible would make for all of humanity in a whole host of different categories. We use resumes all the time. We're really good at using resumes. Let me give you a few examples. I think we use resumes socially. Uh, a few of you this year would have started out Raymond College, or let me not get too particular, let's put Raymond College on hold. You, you're fresh at university, and you're wondering, who are my people going to be? You know what I'm saying? Who are my people? Who are my friends? Where am I going like, to sit at lunch? And here's what you do. When you meet new people, I actually did this last night. I find, when, you know when you meet new people, and you're trying to make connections, and one of the ways you make connections is you, you sort of, you know, some, sometimes, I, I don't do this, clearly, but you, you know, tell them how good you are at certain things. One thing I think we do as humans, I honestly don't feel like I do that, but maybe I do. One thing I think we do do as humans is we like, we say, hey, I know this person, do you know that person? You know when we do that? We just like create these connections. It's like, I know them, they like me, and because you know them, you can like me too, and they're important, so you might see that I'm important, and can I be your friend now? Social circles. But here's what I think we do. I think when we enter new social circles, we're like, cool, I'm just gonna make sure I don't stand out, I wanna fit in. I don't want to sort of like rock the boat too much, and maybe if I fit in, they'll accept me. But then, a few years go on, and you're like, awesome, I'm fitting in, it's really great, then you get bored. So what do you do? You're like, I'm not going to fit in, I want to stand out. And so, a few years into university, a few years into a new social circle, you move from trying to fit in to standing out, and the whole time, what are we doing as humans? Here's what's possible. We're trying to market ourselves with a resume with relevance or standoutedness so that we might be accepted either for who we are or in a way that's different to what the community is. Social, we do this all the time. We use the way, we merit our way into circles, happens socially. I even think it happens romantically. I'm so glad that I'm married, right? Multiple reasons for that. One of the key reasons is, I think dating's really hard these days. You know that experience where you like, you send a text message when you're dating someone and you're just like, overthink it way too much. And the whole time you're just thinking, am I gonna blow this? Everyone in the room relates to this. <laughs> and then you see the three dots top, like, pop up on the iMessage, but then it disappears before they've replied. Dating's hard. And when you're dating, you're thinking the whole time, how can I perfectly curate my social and verbal interaction with this human not so that they'd like me, but just so they don't reject me too quickly. <laughs> and the whole time, we're sort of marketing ourselves with these resumes by which we might get acceptance from the person that hopefully one day we romantically get to get together with. Bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Socially, romantically, parenting. Don't have time for that one. <laughs> Here's the argument of the Bible. The argument of the Bible is that we use a resume so we'd accept ourselves. You just gotta pick your category. What is it 
that you want to excel in at life, that if you're successful, you'll feel okay. Everyone here, myself included, has something. For me, it's my ability to articulate. I think it's a gift God's given me. I'm really grateful. But you know the times when I preach a sermon that just feels like it was a bit like less articulate? It does something to me that it wouldn't do to others in the room. And add to that the fact that I'm a professional Christian and I'm freed up full-time financially to minister to God's people and be ministered to them at the same time myself. And if I like stuff up or fail or... Like it's not just that I've done the wrong thing, it's like I've transgressed my very self and I'm not okay. Now, the more mature people in the room be like, all right, let's go out for coffee. I'm just going to tell you, go easier on yourself. And that's great. I've got people in my life that do that. And, you know, one of the beauties of the Uniting Church is that I'm mandated to get pastoral supervision. So I'm all good. It's fine. It's okay. I just want to share so that maybe you feel free just to name what it is in your own life. Name your resume. What is it? We've all got one. And all of us use it to preach to ourselves that we're going to be okay. Paul gives us his. And what we see him do next makes us feel like it's going to be okay that we do have one, but it doesn't need to be the whole of our lives. Because he says we need to repent of our religiosity. When I was growing up, I used to think two things about Christians. One, that they were really silly for believing in a God that we can't see. And two, that they must be really good people because they're very religious. And I think if you'd ask the modern person on the street in Brisbane City, what do you think it means to become a Christian? I think they'd say, oh, it means to sort of tidy your life up a bit, get your behavior altered just a touch. In fact, I think one of the inspirations for parents sending kids to private schools, now forgive me if this touches a nerve, regardless of whether you've got a religious background, I've heard it said, oh, we sent our kid to this private school, this religiously affiliated school, so that they would learn morals. And I think the popular impression of what it means to be a Christian is just to tidy up your life religiously. And what we're going to discover in this text is that that is not just wrong. That is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would say this. He says, watch out for those dogs. I'll explain that. Those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. That's verse 3. Then he goes on later in verse uh, 7. There it is. How good. Whatever gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage or poop that I may gain Christ. That's a more faithful translation just for what it's worth, poop. (laughs) And what Paul's doing here is he's moving from like narrative storyteller, here's my credentials, here's my resume, here's how awesome I am, here's the story, And he now moves into sort of accountant logician. And I love the fact that maths doesn't lie because right now Paul's going to do a cost-benefit analysis. Has anyone made decisions in life where you do a pros and cons list? Yeah, a couple of us, awesome. I actually think all of us have done a pros and cons list. Paul does that now with what he calls the way of the law and the way of Jesus. And he does a cost-benefit analysis of pros and cons to both of them. What do I get, you know? And he's not asking it selfishly, he's just asking it 
honestly? What do I get if I allow myself to be one up in the story of God revealed in Jesus? And what do I get if I commit to the old ways of the law under the old covenant? What do I get? And he basically says, and this is why he gets so critical in verse three about what he calls the dogs and the mutilators of the, of the flesh. He says that if I put Judaism up against Christianity, not that they're at odds, actually one eclipses the former in a way that could only be told if both of them were together. But nonetheless, if I put Judaism up against the way of Jesus, the way of Jesus wins every single time. And the reason he does this is because he wants to attack religiosity. He wants to go against the thing which we think is just behavior modification and say there's a deeper story, a deeper reality that the gospel hits home to. Now, how does he do this? First, he attacks the mutilators of the flesh. So in the early church, what's going on is Paul plants a bunch of churches around the Mediterranean basin, the place where the water's really nice and blue and sweet to sort of swim in. Plants a bunch of churches there. And after those churches are planted, he basically says that the way to eternal life and the way to life to the full now is Jesus plus nothing. But then all these Jews come along and they say, actually, to be more faithful followers of Jesus, we need to ask people to add to their Christianity all these Jewish practices, eating kosher meals, getting circumcised, hence mutilators of the flesh, and holding Sabbath, all these things that make up the identity markers for Old Testament Jewish covenant people. And Paul comes along and he just says, actually, Jesus lived and died to eclipse that. That in other words, the gospel of Jesus isn't Jesus plus Old Testament Jewish laws, it's Jesus period. Jesus and nothing. We don't add to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to quote an old school sort of uh, a wordsmith, Jefferson Bethke, religion says do, Jesus says done. That we can't add anything to the gospel. And so when Paul does his cost-benefit analysis, he says actually the way of Jesus, relationship with God through Jesus, wins every single time, which means we learn something about religion. Here you've got Paul, who is a master in the way of Torah, Old Testament law. He's the best of the best of the best. And he says, I've discovered that it is worth nothing. And here's what that shows us about religion. It shows us that if you want to be a Christian, the thing you need to repent of first is, sure, your sin. But even deeper than that, you need to repent of, relig of your religiosity. I love the way Tim Keller says it. He says it like this. He says, to simply repent of your sins just makes you an unsuccessful Pharisee. What makes you a Christian is to repent of your righteousness. Why is that possible? It's possible because religion can become the way by which we feel like we strong-arm God into owing us something. So how do I know that I'm using religion and my own self-righteousness to get something from God? Let me tell you about it in my own life. It's when I just feel this like bubbling away back of mind kind of angst that God's not answered my prayers for something at the moment. And sometimes I'm like, oh, I better explore that anger. Why am I frustrated at God? And the exploration goes something like this. God, I'm angry that you've not answered my prayer in this area. I'm a pastor. I do stuff for you. Like, I try really hard, and still you haven't answered me. What gives? Why are you withholding this from me? I don't understand. Maybe for you, it's you're praying for healing in a certain area of your life. 
Maybe you want a particular job or a particular spouse or a particular life circumstance. There's two ways to want. One is the religious way and one is the relational way. The religious way says, God, I've been doing all this stuff for you. I've kept your commands. I've tried to stop watching those bad TV shows. I've even started saying grace before meals. What gives? And the other is to say, God, you're really good. I'm trying my best. Your will matters most. Everything's grace. Would you please? How do you know if you're using religion to try and control God? Just get angry at him sometimes. <laughs> and the point of the gospel story and the story of Jesus and the wider narrative of the Bible is actually that God's God, we're not, and everything is grace. Everything is a gift. Everything's a wonderful, cherished thing that he gives us freely. And even more so about what he delivers us from in religion. I know I'm getting angry at God and that makes me feel religious, makes me feel like God owes me and allows me to sort of control God along the way. And here's, here's what Paul's really saying, therefore, about how he's considered it loss. If you use religion to control or constrain or believe the myth that that's even possible with how you relate to God, religion becomes the key way through which you distance yourself from him. Let's think about that for a second. If you use your good deeds as a way by which to try and think of yourself controlling God or being angry at God or thinking that he owes you, then the biggest thing that can come between you and him is not your sin, it's actually your self-righteousness. Right? Now here's why this is liberating. Because the gospel and following Jesus is not just about repenting from our sin. It's about repenting from all the good things we put between us and him. All the beautiful things. And so here's the question. What's the righteousness? What's your religiosity that you just need to repent of this afternoon? What's in the way between you and just this unashamed, unfettered, unhindered, naked sitting with Jesus? What's in the way? Something is. We've all got a resume. We've all got a religiosity. And so we actually all need not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus. Paul's argument's really simple. Last point. There's two operating systems in life. One is our own resume and own religiosity, and the other is the righteousness of Jesus. And here's the argument of the Bible, that when you let grace be the fundamental thing that undergirds your operating system, life is way more freedom, way more joy, way more purpose, way more meaning. That if you let grace be the fuel of the fire of your life, you will be a completely different person. Actually, this is the key to the conversion Paul experienced, and I dare say it's the key to the conversion that C.S. Lewis experienced. When C.S. Lewis was asked, what's the most unique thing about Christianity? What does Christianity have that no other world religion has? He had one word, grace. Why? Because here's the Christian story. The Christian story is that God made us for himself. Our hearts were not made for anything else. To quote another old philosopher, Blaise Pascal, our hearts have a God-shaped hole in them and nothing else but him will fill them. I don't know what you walked into this afternoon's church experience with, but maybe you're sitting here going, I'm living a pretty awesome life. I don't need God. And actually this text comes along and as a gentle pastoral balm would just say, you should probably think again. Maybe you walked in this afternoon and you say, actually, I don't know how God could love me. 
I've done some stuff this week, and I claim to be a follower of Jesus. Or I'm just surprised the church didn't burn up as I walked into its midst because I've never wanted to know Jesus, and I actually hate the idea of Christianity. And you hear this story. You hear this picture. And actually, God would say, oh, yeah, let's call a spade a spade. You've not lived the life that I have destined you to live. A few years ago, um, one of my colleagues uh, with the organization I worked for, he got up in front of, in front of a bunch of bankers and, um, and he said, I want to read you something from a book I really cherish. I'm not going to tell you where it's from, but I just want you to hear it and see whether it resonates with your life in any kind of way. And, and, and as I say these words, I just want to invite the band back up behind me. It resonates with your life in any kind of way. And I love that he did this because it allowed this particular text to speak something that the bankers wouldn't have been open to hearing. Here's what the text says. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Who will deliver me? from this body that is subject to death. Anyone felt like that sometimes? Same guy, actually, the Apostle Paul. It's Romans 7. And all of us have this deficit in our hearts which say, I remember something beautiful about life and I know that I'm meant to live a certain way, but man, I just haven't. And what religion wants to come and do is say, awesome. Here's the eight noble truths. Here's the fivefold path. Here's the law. Pick yourself up, buy your bootstraps, clean up your life, behavior modification, moral adjustment. And here's what Christianity does. God comes in the person of Jesus, lives the life that we should have, died the death that we deserved. And when the Apostle Paul cries in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's a different body that is dying, hanging on the cross at the end of the gospel saying, actually this body, the body of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that on the cross, Jesus didn't just die at the hands of Rome. He actually experienced something of an exchange. And that exchange is we call actually our unrighteousness for his righteousness, our rags for his riches, our garbage for his beauty. beauty of this story is that it's not just the thing that gets you into following Jesus. There are people in the room right now who've been reminded of this story afresh and you're thinking, gosh, my heart needed to hear this. Mine too, this week, particularly as I studied this passage. But here's the last thing I want to invite us to do, receive the righteousness of Jesus. So can I invite you to stand? I spoke earlier about the possibility of miracles. The greatest miracle that could ever occur is when an individual says before God, I repent of my sin and I also repent of my righteousness. I receive yours, Jesus Christ. So I just wanna create space for anyone in the room for whom that touches a nerve and invite you to respond to that perhaps for the first time. So can I just invite us just to close our eyes, everyone in the room. And the question I'm asking simply is this, would you exchange your righteousness, whether self-righteousness or unrighteousness, and receive the righteousness of God 
purchased for you freely by grace from Jesus. Do you wanna step into a relationship with God? If that's you, just raise a hand where you are. I would love to pray with you. Wherever you are, thank you. I see that hand. Raise them nice and high. We'd just love to know who I'm praying for. And also we've got a gift from our host team uh, that will bring you a Bible. So raise that hand nice and high. Thank you so much. I see that. That's so helpful. Anyone else just want to leave space in the room just for a moment? Wonderful. Wonderful. We're going to pray. And before I do, I just want to say this is the best decision of your life. This is the best decision you can make with your life. And so we're going to celebrate after we pray, but let's pray together. All of us with one voice, we're going to sing out loud and pray. Sorry, God, thank you and please. So repeat after me. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for living the life I should have lived and dying the death I deserve. You have delivered me. Please come into my life. Fill me with your spirit and help me walk in freedom and joy because you're my Savior and Lord. Amen. I honestly just want to raise my hands together. Can we just encourage that person? I just don't think there's anything better you can decide with your life than to follow Jesus. I've been doing it now for over 10 years and my life's different. I'd love to say, like C.S. Lewis's secretary, that I'm thoroughly converted. I've got more of a way to go. One last question before I finish. We're going to worship together. And I just love that Paul would use a bit of a curse word to describe what he throws down at the feet of Jesus because he's found something way, way better. And the word he uses is rubbish. Behind me on the screen, you'll see a photo. I don't know if you know, but recently Paris was overtaken by rubbish. And I had a conversation with friends recently and we were asking, you know, if one job was to be eclipsed in the world, what would make the most difference? And people were like, oh, engineers, pilots, you know, we need pilots, we need engineers. I actually reckon waste management people would be high up the list. Because what happens when rubbish hangs around for too long? It stinks. And it makes a mess. And what freedom is found for those that inhabit a particular place when rubbish is taken care of. And so I just know as I was preparing this week, there are people in the room, myself included, who've got rubbish they just need to get rid of. I don't know what that is, but I know it's something. And so we just want to create space down the front here this afternoon. There's nothing magical about this place, but there is something significant about moving from the place you're in with your whole body to come and receive alongside a body of people. And so I just say, if you want to deal with rubbish, you're going to have a team of people prepared to pray with you. And even too, just to create space for you to kneel. And so as we start to sing and worship God, feel free to come down the front, receive prayer, and to deal with what the Spirit would impress upon your heart to deal with. Let me pray. Father, thank you. Lord, you're just so amazing. You look at the rubbish of our lives, both the stuff we've done wrong and the stuff we've done good that keeps you at arm's length, and you just say, I don't, I don't care. I just, I just want you.
And so, Father, we just as a community, just freely this afternoon, we just say, we, we want you back. We, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation this afternoon? Father, the thing that touched us, which made us cry at first, would you restore to us as we worship you now? And we just say as a community, come Holy Spirit. Fall among us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening to the New Life Podcast. If that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer, you can head to church.nu forward slash prayer or contact us through our Instagram or Facebook page. We pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.